Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts 4, 11, uh, 4.32 through 5.11. Uh, rise, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. Have you ever been in a bad romantic relationship? Maybe you dated someone a little bit young, and if you're a woman, you pursued a bad boy, or if you're a man, you pursued a woman that was not very good for you. And as a result of that relationship, you found yourself in a place where you were drawn to the person. There were certain aspects of the individual that attracted you to them. And you thought that you got certain things from the person. But you knew at the same time that that person was no good for you. And so you found yourself almost trapped in a bit of a dysfunctional relationship. The Marshall Tucker Band famously sings, I'm going to take a freight train. Down at the station, I don't care where it goes. Going to climb me a mountain, the highest mountain, jump off, nobody going to know. Can't you see, oh, can't you see what that woman she been doing to me? Can't you see, can't you see what that woman, Lord, been doing to me? Have you ever had cause to sing that? 
whether about a woman or about a man, right? can't you see what that person, that man or that woman has been doing to me? Now, we're talking in the context of a dysfunctional romantic relationship, but that's an incredibly apt analogy for the dysfunctional relationship that you have with yourself. Right? Your two parts, your old man and your new man, coexisting in the same flesh at the same time. And as a result of that, the New Testament says that there is a war within you. The old man trying to get what he wants according to his lies and his devices. And the new man, renewed in Christ, trying to live according to the will of God. And these two butt heads. Paul describes the tension in Romans 7 this way. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Two laws at the same time, in the one flesh, battling against one another. And a relationship with that old self is like a bad romantic relationship because we really do at times love our old self very much. And we think our old self will give to us certain things that our new self won't. And so we continue to humor him or her, continue to be connected to him or her. Now, you may find that a bit abstract, so let's just throw out a few very quick examples to describe what I'm talking about. And particularly in the light of Ananias and Sapphira's lie, we're talking about the ways in which we allow our old self to lie on our behalf because of what we think it will bring us. And so, boys and girls, I'll start, we'll go youngest to oldest today, or kind of. But imagine that you've been left to do your homework. Your mother, your father says, listen, I need you to get your math done. I'm going to go do some other chores in the house. And they depart. And you see 30 minutes go by, and that parent returns. It says, how's it going? Now, your new self, which loves truth and righteousness, and knows that you're so loved by Jesus, you're not afraid of being vulnerable, wants to say, yeah, you know what? As soon as you left, I started playing with my toys. And I haven't really gotten anything done, and I just picked up my pencil because I heard your footsteps coming down the hallway. But even as you're about to say that, the old self comes in and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't want to say that. You don't want to be vulnerable. You, you know what's going to happen if you say that? And so the old self says, uh, hey, it's going great. I'm almost done. And to distract everyone from the situation, you throw in, hey, you know, do you want me to set the table when I'm done with my math? Ah, right? It's not the truth, but suddenly you're not getting in trouble. The old self's pretty happy, and you feel like the old self has delivered something to you. All right, women. Maybe you bump in to a friend, an old friend in town shopping, Old friend says, it starts going on and on about how great. She's just come from her book club. It's amazing. They're sharing on such deep levels, forming such profound relationships. And she finally says, how are you? And your true self is about to say, or your, your new self, right? Renewed in Christ, free, not afraid, is about to say, you know what? Uh, it's been an awful week. Things in our house aren't good. And I'm really lonely. 
is there any way that you have an opening in your book club? Because I need some friends. But your, your old self's like, no, 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 we don't want any of that. Right? that that's way too out there. Let's, let's protect ourselves. You are being, you're walking a dangerous road. And so the old self comes in and says, uh, yeah, that's great. I love book clubs. I was, I, you know, I've been part of book clubs. We read classics, classics that were at least 800 pages. But I gave it up because I'm so busy now saving the unborn at the crisis pregnancy center. But I'm glad you have time for your book club. And you walk off. And suddenly you're protected. You threw a jab at the same time, right? But the old self has given you something. The old self is important. And just so we don't leave anyone out, men, right? You're at home, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, and you get a call from a friend. I say, hey, how's it going? The new self wants to say, you know, you caught me at a bad time, and I need to confess some things to you. Instead, the old self, being protective, wanting to watch after you, says, you know what? I was out in the garage thinking about what I might make for the silent auction this year. I'm going to try to raise as much money for India as possible. And again, the old self is protected, is guarded, has offered something that we feel like we need, and then we're willing to live in the midst of those lies, right? And realize that if that resonates with you at all, and if it doesn't, you're a much more righteous person than I am, right? Realize that in that resonance, we have a lot more in common than Ananias and Sapphira than we'd like to think. The willingness to lie to create an illusion that gives us the appearance of holiness or righteousness rather than real holiness or righteousness. We live for an image rather than for something that is authentic. So I'd like to explore that in the midst of our passage and see Luke is going to great pains again to draw contrast. A contrast between those who live according to the new self, and that will be the early church and Barnabas in particular, and those who live according to the old self, and that will, of course, be Ananias and Sapphira. So I want us to ask, what is new about the church? What is old about Ananias and Sapphira? And then what difference does it make? So we'll begin with the church. What makes it new? Uh, Look at verse 32 with me. You have a breathtaking description of the community in the early church. It says, Now the full number of those who belonged were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, just to knock out a quick note, uh, sometimes people will assert that the New Testament advocated socialism or communism, and sometimes people get upset or go down this rabbit trail, but please note that there's no compulsion here. No one's being forced to sell or to do anything. Peter will even reiterate that point when he talks to Ananias for the decisions that he's made. Not only that, but we also see later on in Acts that the church benefits from some wealthy patrons who have withheld their homes and properties and end up using them as places for the church to meet. There's no, this isn't a a reducing of all goods so that it can be shared uh, equitably under the discretion of the apostles, right? It's a voluntary giving. It's It's a generosity, although we would certainly call it a radical generosity, Because we see in verses 34 and 35 how it's functioning and what it's affecting. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What a beautiful picture. You see, what's happening are those 
note that it says they have land or houses. So we're talking about the wealthy in the group. In the ancient world, you know, particularly in the first century, there's no way that more than 10% of the community would have owned extra land or an extra home. That would have been terribly rare and only reserved for the most elite aspects of society. So what you see here is a picture of those with means are willingly separating with their means so that those without means might be benefited as a result of that sharing. Now, I think we need to say a couple things about this picture of community. The first thing that we need to say is that it's very easy learning that historical tidbit to excuse ourselves from being generous. It's very easy to say, well, I don't own extra property and I don't have a vacation home, so clearly I'm not the target of this passage and I don't need to think about being radically generous. Of course not. That's not Luke's point. Luke, who more than any other gospel writer, will go out of his way throughout his gospel and throughout Acts to demonstrate that the Christian community is characterized by its generosity overall, by its willingness to part with material possessions to the benefit of the entire community. This, you know, on the one hand, is why our relationship with Children's Relief International is so important, because it reminds us that in the, from a global perspective, we are exceedingly rich. When we use our American dollars and willingly separate from them and then use them towards one of the projects in India, we can affect significant and remarkable change under the leaders there. It's one of the reasons we're trying to live out this passage, to be faithful and to hold with an open hand what God has entrusted to us, that it might be a benefit to those in the church who are poor. And we also have to note not only the generosity, but the radical community here, right? you realize what is required for a community to operate at this level. If you want to describe intimate community, you, can, you really can't describe anything more significant than the sharing of the knowledge of people's wealth. Right? Just think for a moment about how guarded we are. I don't want you to know how much I have. I don't want you to know what I have in savings or, or what I don't have in savings or how little I have. Right? We consider wealth to be very private. And what you have here is a picture of a community in which the rich are willing to say, yeah, I'm rich. It's a dangerous thing to say because you're marked out as somebody with resources that people might want to have access to. You also have people willing to say, uh, I'm in a bad spot. Uh, something befell me that was beyond my control. Or I made some bad decisions. And as a result, they're known. Right? Both groups are known to the other and are vulnerable, vulnerable to the other, they can be taken advantage for that, for that very information that's been laid on the table. So what Luke is doing is giving us a picture of a particularly intimate community. It's born out of individuals who are willing to live out of their new self to say, we don't need an image. We don't need to present ourselves in a certain way because we're being freed in Christ. If Jesus died for me, knowing exactly who I was, I don't need to impress you. Right? And there's radical freedom in that statement. So what, what Luke is inviting us to and what he's heralding or um, acknowledging is going on in that, that community. And we need to be reminded how important, and we've become so individualistic, how important true and real community is. There's a beautiful picture of a town in Pennsylvania that uh, is known as Rosetto. Rosetto started because in 1882, 10 men and one boy uh, came through New York City uh, immigrating from Italy from a town in Italy called Rosetto, which is why they would name the town in Pennsylvania Rosetto. And why did they land there? Well, they were stone workers. 
And there was a quarry, there's lots of quarries in Pennsylvania, if you've been there. And they ended up being stonecutters in Pennsylvania. And they started their town. And over in the 1890s, things were bad in Italy. And about 1,500 Rosettans would come over. And the town would grow quickly to be a town of about 2,000 people. Now, Rosetto, in and of itself, wasn't particularly remarkable until it was noted in almost uh, a meeting that almost didn't happen in the 1950s of what set Rosetto apart and why it was terribly unique. There's a man, a doctor, named Stuart Wolf. He was at the University of Oklahoma, and he studied the stomach and digestion. And he happened to have a farm, family farm in Pennsylvania. So he would go spend long months in the summer up at his family farm in Pennsylvania. He was asked to speak at one of the medical society meetings, gave his talk, was invited out for a beer afterwards with one of the doctors, local doctors. And they're chatting, and the local doctor says, you know, uh, there's something remarkable that I'd like to mention to you and get your feedback on. There's a town here, the name of the town is Rosetto, and I cannot find a single person in the town over the age of 65 that has heart disease. Now, if, if you were a doctor in the late 1950s and early 1960s, knowing that heart disease is the leading cause of death for men in the country, and to, to hear that over 65, particularly in that age bracket, they, bracket, they weren't seeing any heart disease, uh, Wolf's initial response was, A, you're either, either A, you're lying, or B, you don't know what you're talking about and haven't done adequate research. But he was a, he was a very curious academic. He was, his interest was piqued. And so he immediately set up a study and proceeded to get grants and researchers and moved to Rosetto in 1961 to study the town. And the town was unquestionably a health anomaly. Not only did they not have heart disease, they didn't suffer anywhere near the percentages of other major uh, health factors that the rest of the country was dealing with at the time. And so Wolf started scratching his head and said, okay, we've got to figure this out. You know, there might be something really worthwhile to offer all of humanity as a result of this town. So they started with the factors that you might expect them to start with, like diet. What are they eating? Maybe they eat lots of fish and kale and are really healthy as a result of that. And uh, the answer to that was actually no. Uh, they cooked with lard. And they ate ridiculous amounts of calories. In fact, 40% of their diet came from fat. And they were actually remarkable for the lack of health in their diet, as good Italians. So they said, well, if it's not diet, maybe it's physical fitness. Maybe these guys are all getting up at 5 a.m. and running. The answer to that was no. They were actually a pretty unremarkable culture in terms of any kind of physical exercise. They didn't really care for it. And they also, uh, most of the town smoked, and a good percentage of the town struggled with obesity. So that was off the table. So they said, well, maybe it's the location. Maybe there's something in the water or in the air in Rosetto. And so they, they studied all of the neighboring communities that surrounded Rosetto, and nothing stood out because all of the other communities suffered from the same epidemics that the rest of the country suffered from. So they expired every notion that they had to explain the health anomaly in Rosetto, which led Wolf to finally sit down and uh, pay attention to the town itself, in which he finally concluded it's actually the community in which they exist that makes the difference in their health. So he started to chronicle all the ways in which Rosetto had preserved an old way of life, even within America. They still spoke 
their old language uh, from Italy. Three generations often dwelt in the same house. Grandparents were afforded a significant degree of respect. People spent abnormally long times chatting in the streets. If someone got into trouble, the community came together to cover, not to hide their sins, but to deal with whatever problem had occurred so that no one would suffer. And the community was held together and driven by a church that had been, was almost as old as the community itself right, and had created a community that was committed to a Christian charity to one another. I said, this is, this, Rosetto has actually forged a community that is so intimate and vulnerable and transparent that they've protected themselves from some of the ills, the ills of health that exist around us. Now, what do you think happened to Rosetto? Well, what happened to the rest of the country? The GI Bill came after World War II. We built lots of interstates. Everybody bought a car. And we needed bigger cars, and we needed garages. And then once we had those, we might as well put a fence up around the yard. And during the 70s and into the 80s, uh, Rosetta spread out. They lost the intense community that they had, living really close to each other, being in each other's yards, living in the same house. And as a result, they lost all the health benefits. By the 1980s, Rosetta wasn't any different from the rest of the nation uh, because they had become just like us in terms of being individualistic and not being committed to real community. This is what we see Luke picturing for us all right, as, the, as the church is infantile in its age, but it's a community that's characterized by people willing to be utterly transparent and invest in others because they believe that the God that they worship has done this on their behalf. And as they do that and live that on unfaithfulness, it creates a beautiful community in which everyone is cared for and that Luke can be so audacious as to say that there was no one who was left in need. It's a stunning picture. It's a community to which we aspire to. We fall desperately short, pathetically short. Right? But you have to be reminded and, and have to be invited to, to press into community. To press into relationships in which you say, I don't feel like I have to hold this image in front of you. And I would invite you to be real with me as well. And let's not judge but let's just listen and encourage each other. And that's why you, must, you truly must press into a community group. You don't get any of the community that Luke is here describing on Sunday morning. This is largely an individual affair where you may exchange a few pleasantries with someone on a Sunday morning, but you're not pursuing the depth of life that is here described to characterize the Christian community. That's something that you really, to enjoy the fullness of Christ, and to receive his face and his grace through the, the hands and the words of your brothers and sisters, you must press into community for that. All right, so that's what's new about the church. What then is old about Ananias and Sapphira? Let's look at the nature of their sin. Verse 2 says, They sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay. Now, notice in verse 4 what Peter says to him. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? What's going on? Do you get what Peter is saying? You might read this quickly and conclude, well, the church is being awfully harsh since they're asking for all this money anyway. What Peter is making clear is they haven't asked or pressured anyone for anything. 
Peter says to Ananias, look, the property was yours. You didn't have to sell it. And even when you did sell it, the money was yours. You didn't have to bring it. And when you brought it, you didn't have to lie about it. But this is what you've chosen to do. Why would Ananias do this? Right? Just so we have a really clear picture. Be like, imagine you owned a, a rental property right here in Rockwell. And you decided to sell it and you sold it for $150,000. Then you came to the elders of the church and you said, you know, I am, I am just moved by the Spirit and I want to be generous to my church. I sold my rental property for $90,000 and I'm going to give all of it to the church. That's impressive. Impressive unless you really know that the property went for $150,000 and what the person is really doing is saying, I'm going to get the respect and the attention that comes with somebody who makes a bunch of money and gives all of it to the church with no reservation. And at the same time, I'm going to make $60,000. It's a win-win for the old man, for the old self. I can get the attention and the worship I want from my community, and at the same time, I get some extra money. Isn't it sad that Ananias is willing to live for something, to be worshipped for something that isn't true of himself? I'm going to lie. I know I'm going to lie, but I want the reaction that this lie will elicit rather than being true. Now, we would be really foolish and short-sighted to not realize that we are very often guilty of this. All the small ways in which we might we might use certain words to articulate something that we've done. Or we might hide something in the background. Or if it's as simple as you, know, you hear the garage door open and you jump up to do some dishes because you don't want to be caught watching the football game and not having participated in cleaning the house. That's just a hypothetical example. <laughs> so we realize that we, too would lie, and we need to be struck, I think, by the, uh, the nature of how Luke describes the sin. If you look at verse 3, it says that Satan himself has tempted Ananias, and I will hold out to you that Ananias and Sapphira were probably very good targets, because if they're already trying to live according to image in this fashion, they're not going to be immersed in community. Right? The more immersed in community you are, the harder target you're going to be for Satan to tempt. Then the sin is described as a lie to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. It's described as a lie to God in verse 4. And the gist of the question Peter asks in verse 4 is really, what have you done? Right? He's not simply asking for information. Uh, in, in the Greek, it's more like, my goodness, do you realize what you have done? Is what he poses to Ananias. And so we see that Ananias is willing to live out of his old self. He's allowing the old self to call the decisions, and as a result, he would prefer image to being real and would be content to receive more worship and uh, adulation as a result of being false. He doesn't care. He just wants the worship and the respect, whether he's earned it or not. That's a secondary issue. That's the kind of question a new self would ask. Now, what difference does this make for you? What difference does it make for me? One of the hardest aspects about the story, at least for me, is Peter. Doesn't Peter seem a bit harsh? Well, what just happened in Peter's story? You know, it's not that long ago 
that Peter just denied Jesus three times. It's also not that long ago that Jesus met him in great grace and compassion on a beach and gave him three charges to undo his three denials, to restore him. And now you have Peter, you would think maybe his response might be, Ananias, you've made such a terrible mistake. Will you come clean? Repent. Be restored. Instead, the Spirit strikes Ananias dead. Now, why is Peter so harsh? Or why is this story so harsh? The text doesn't really tell us, but I'll tell you what I think is going on. The early church sits on the edge of a knife in terms of what kind of community it's going to be. It's preceded by the people of God for 2,000 years, always having decided to live out of the old self. Always having decided to prefer image, right, rather than real relationship with God. If there's any issue that Jesus takes up with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, it is their hypocrisy. Their willingness to appear clean on the outside while being on the inside very dirty. Whitewashed tombs, he will call them. And now the question is, what kind of community is the church going to be? Are they simply going to walk in the footsteps of all the generations of God's people that have come before? Or is this truly going to be something different? And suddenly, those people who aren't going to act any different, who truly aren't walking in the Spirit, drop dead. And that's a, that's a pretty different story. It's so different that at the end, it says great fear came upon all the people. The Greek in, in, uh, for great fear is great. It's phobos megas. Mega fear came upon all the people. They're terrified as a result of Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead. But as a result of that fear, perhaps a very healthy, godly fear, they were able to ask the question, who are we going to be? Are we going to be a community of old selves in which we just devour each other and pretend to be righteous. That our holiness is simply an illusion, but really we're just consuming one another. You see how Ananias is consuming the people in the church, right? He says, I'm bringing such and such money, but I want you to worship me for this gift. I want you to honor me for this gift. And so he expects the others to give to him, but he's not willing to give in proportion to the, to the accord he wants to receive. And so he's eating up the people. They're, those people exist for his benefit. And that's a community of old selves, right? That's all that happens in communities of old selves is they eat each other. So that's one direction the church can go. The other direction is to be truly a community of new selves, to be renewed right, in freedom because you know that you have been loved and accepted by Christ and then to extend love and acceptance to one another and to pursue holy and righteousness in a real way because you can repent in a real way. Of course, who doesn't want that over the other? To pursue life in the old self is simply to sing over and over again the refrain, can't you see, can't you see what that woman Lord been doing to me? It's simply a life of exhaustion and exasperation as you can't make the checks, right? You can't, you can't uh, cash the checks that you keep writing based on your old self. But to come to the new self and to lay all that down, well, that is to be new in Christ. We aspire to be a real community of new selves, but that begins with you, and that is the invitation this morning. Right? Are you living out of the old self, or are you living out of the new self? And from this day forward, which direction really do you want to go? Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have smashed the chains that hold us in bondage. And yet we acknowledge at the same time that we live in a place in which we wrestle, we struggle, and we see, we see an old self working within us for sin and selfish desire. And we, we also know the work of your spirit seeking to make us new. We so often get in the way of your spirit and ask that you would forgive us and make us, uh, strengthen us in your spirit and help us to understand that strength doesn't, co- doesn't come by American Western definitions of strength. Strength comes by dying. Uh, so help us to die. Help us to see our old selves expire and to rejoice in their death and instead to be to be known for who we are in Christ and to find life there. Would you encourage us and meet us at the table this morning? Would you feed us so that we might move in that direction, that narrow road of becoming newer and newer in you? We ask for your grace in this. In Christ's name, amen.